should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. We're here Thursday mornings at the Commonwealth Club with my co-host, John Zipper. John, thanks so much for having us here. It is an incredible building, but this view... Yes, we've we've talked about maybe turning the program around so the audience can see out the window over the bay, but then they wouldn't pay attention to anything we said. So they're facing us. We get this great view. On Thursday mornings, we do a special taping here at the Commonwealth Club. The Michelle Miao Show airs on the Progressive Voices Network Monday through Friday at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. And then I also produce a local talk program on Coffee TV channel 20 and 713 on cable that is focused on the LGBTQ community. And the goal here is to include the LGBTQ community in our conversations with an intersectional approach. And so this month we're focused on Black History Month, but instead of going back and talking about contributions of of black history, we wanted to focus on people in our community who are making history. And there's so much to learn from activists who are right here in our backyard. So we'll get started with our program. Our special guest today, the first half, are the founders of the Oakland LGBTQ Center that just opened up in 2017, if you'll believe that. And so we'll find out uh, why it took so long and, you know, just uh, kind of what they've been up to. It's not like they just popped out of nowhere and put this building together. So let's, uh, let's welcome Joe Hawkins and Jeff Meyer. Welcome uh, to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, let's kick off with that question. I mean, when we think about, you know, LGBTQ organizing, especially in our history, there are a, a, a lot of things that we were doing was uh, organizing around socializing, a way for us to come together. And LGBT centers were thought to be one of the first resource organizations for our community because society did not have those types of resources for our community. But it's interesting that Oakland would open its first LGBTQ center in 2017. And so some people might be asking, why did it take so long? I'll start with you, Joe. Well, the oldest LGBTQ center is Los Angeles. It's also the largest in the world, the largest budget. And that's that opened during the early 70s. The second largest, I mean, the second oldest is New York. And then there's the Pacific Center in Berkeley is the, actually the third. Um, San Francisco just opened theirs 15 years ago. You know, the gay mecca. So it's not very surprising to me that a city that has been, you know, tr historically um, filled with marginalized people and predominantly 
for a long time, African-American people, that it would that we would just open open a center now. Um, when I'm one of the founders of Oakland Pride, and when we started Oakland Pride, there used to be something called East Bay Pride that we used to do. And when East Bay Pride went under, uh, a city council person, uh, Rebecca Kaplan, uh, reinvigorated a round table that was actually started by Danny Wan, who was Oakland's first out gay uh, elected official, city council person. And uh, once he left, she, she, you know, we all came together and they said, well, let's, let's, we've got to get East Bay Pride back started. This was like 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And um, so just 12 years ago, 11 years ago, we started o Oakland Pride. Mm -hmm. So I just think that in many ways, San Francisco, people I felt overshadowed by San Francisco and many marginalized communities had, have felt disempowered. Um, I think for people like Jeff and I, uh, who Jeff also served as the... Volunteer coordinator yeah. for Oakland Pride. My, my take on it is a little... Well, I totally agree with Joe, but when it comes to why Oakland um, LGBTQ started, to be honest, I think a lot of people just didn't take the initiative to do it. Actually, yeah, people came and asked me, why now? I said, why not now? I mean, there are a lot of people in our community who have the resources, the connection, and have a lot going on that they could have started a center, but no one seemed like they took the initiative to do it. And we're, me and Joe were talking about it for years. And I really wanted a center. And so I was talking to people. I even went to um, uh, you know, um, the center in San Francisco and talked to their executive director one time. They had a fundraiser, and I was just there, and I was asking questions about even starting a center and what could we do to get one. And, you know, there were discussions about probably, you know, being a satellite, uh, getting information from them. But, you know, after that conversation, I realized that we need to do something on our own. And knowing Joe, having so many connections in the community and starting Oakland Pride, you know, so we just decided to have a conversation about it. Well, when, I, when I heard from Jeff that, well, j just to talk a little bit about how it actually started. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jeff lives, I've known him for about 15 years. Uh, he, he served, as he said, I, he was one of the first people I recruited to help with Oakland Pride. And um, I was literally walking down the street to go to Whole Foods, don't judge me. It's right <laughs> down on the corner from where I live in Oakland. And he lives on the same street that I live on. And I'm, I was walking down the street. He said, Joe, he waved from his patio. <laughs> Joe, um, I want to come, come, I want to talk with you. So I went over to talk with him. And he said, uh, he was talking about random things. And I said, Jeff, what do you want? And he said, we need to start the center. I was in San Francisco, and they, they were, I was asking them, what, how could they help us? And they talked about a few things, and he, he did mention some discussion about a satellite. I said, Jeff, that can never happen. There can never be a San Francisco satellite in Oakland. <laughs> mm -hmm. No. And I said, 
if you want to start a center, then that means we have to start the center. And I said, do you want to start the center? And he said, <laughs> yes. And I said, well, then you better effing help me. Yes, it takes work, and it's actually quite shocking that, or not. I mean, Livermore, for example, has a shopping center, and they call it the San Francisco um, shop, or, yeah, outlet. And, it, and where, where do we draw the line of where San Francisco actually is? I mean, it really is seven by seven. There's even a magazine dedicated to the fact that, you know, San Francisco is only seven by seven miles radius. Um, but to your point, what, what I find shocking about it is that we would even consider it be a satellite <laughs> location. John. So what were the, the services and, and the needs that you specifically wanted the center to, to solve uh, or to provide? And, and well, clearly, because since there was no center, mm-hmm. um, one of the first things we did was we, we've had over 600 people register to volunteer so we created committees to assess what the community felt what the needs are. And um, we were very active from the outset with people in the community, meeting regularly, discussing what the needs were, and then just starting the services. We're 100% volunteer operated. We have, we're funded by the community. Uh, just recently, the Horizons Foundation gave us a, a $5,000 grant, but um, it has been a grassroots, community-driven effort. Um, and I'm very proud to say that our commu- the community of Oakland is very queer. Um, also, a lot of people have been pushed out of San Francisco, uh, and they're living in Oakland now, and they're looking for a way to connect with the community. Right now, we're, we're, we are doing everything from meditation and people of color yoga <laughs> to uh, family and children. And trans. And trans. trans community and over there. It, there are a lot of, if you look at our calendar, it's pretty busy. Uh, but I think what's most important is that people understand that you know, Oakland has been organizing and a social justice, you know, hub forever. Uh, we all know the history of the Black history of the Black Panther Party. What people don't know is that the Lake area of Oakland has always been a Black gay mecca. That's what they don't know. That's what you won't Google because... We're not, we've never been on the radar of white gay San Francisco or the white gay mainstream. So forever we've had in Oakland, and this was before gentrification and before Oakland's 25% African-American drop in population because of the gentrification. But we had our own magazines. When I first got to Oakland in the late 80s, there were black gay magazines, nightclubs and bars all throughout. Um, that was also a time when, when we would come to San Francisco to, to clubs, we would get carded multiple times. Here's my ID, let me see, okay, give me, I need another piece of ID, I need another. So cl- clearly, San Francisco, uh, the queer community, 
there was a lot of racism. We just recently wrapped up the first series with Ken Folk and Spectrum Queer Media and members of Surge. Uh, we did what we believe is was the, the, the first racism under the rainbow series and to address the fact that we don't need to go into the mainstream community to find racism. It's very prevalent in the LGBTQ white community and directed at us. So it's, you don't, people, I think sometimes people think that the LGBTQ community is this harmonious, homogenous, I don't know, it's like we're all, we all get along, uh, get along, but it's very clear that we are just, uh, you know, mirror representation sometimes of the mainstream community. Uh, being gay doesn't make you not racist. Uh, it's interesting how many white LGBTQ people could be asking from the mainstream white community for equality when they're oppressing queer, queer people of color. Well, let's talk about that and, and in a way where we can address it to make some changes and in some ways come together, if it's even possible, or what you think might be uh, strategies for the reprioritization of those in our community so that we can tell our stories and we could tell authentic um, or, yeah, take back the narrative and be authentic about it. So for yourself in having to come together with the community to uh, raise above all of those challenges and struggles, you have successfully uh, organized to to launch the first LGBTQ center in Oakland with communities of color in mind. So talk to us about, you know, what has been successful for you, um, how you deal with you know, the struggles even within our own community and how we, we could empower those in our community to continue doing the work like what you do. Yeah, I think it, this makes me think of an interview that we had with The Advocate. And remember, and they, and they asked us, uh, what, how is it, they saw the pictures on our website, and they said, how is it that you guys are so diverse? How, why is it that it seems like all your pictures are filled with diversity? And I said, well, it's because we're in Oakland. Mm -hmm. Oakland is the most ethnically diverse city in America, not just in the Bay Area. New York was like number four or, four or five in comparison. So to have, to live in a city that's so ethnically diverse, where we are constantly in contact with one another, and not just, um, not just you know, on the job, but just socializing. Uh, my, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dad, my son is 34 now, and I have three How amazing. Old are you? I'm seven thousand. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 I just started letting my gray come in <laughs> and my beard. But be you know, time. I have three beautiful grandchildren. That's a whole nother story. But what when my son was growing up in Oakland, just to know that when people, his friends would come over, that you would see Asian youth. You know. Latin youth, white youth, like these were, this, these were his friends. This is how he grew up. And I think that 
when I look at how the center is evolving, uh, well, and it's not even how it's evolving, it's how it started and how it is today. We're only, we just celebrated five months open, by the way, yesterday. yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. So, uh, but it's very diverse. It's just, I think w the fact that we were able to have that racism under the rainbow um, workshop and people not be afraid to attend and um, just to, here is something that was very interesting about that workshop. We all met in one room, the whole community, the, all of the, atten the attendees. And then the white people were asked to leave the room and go to another room. And the people of color stayed in the room to discuss from their perspectives how racism has affected them, how they've experienced racism. And it was pretty, pretty powerful. And then we just recently had, the, I think, the final session it was on Martin Luther King Jr. day, where everyone got to come together and do the same thing together and also find Common Ground, which is the name of our community room, Common Ground. And um, so I think that we might be lucky to live in Oakland yes. because we have such ethnic diversity that we're able to have these very hard conversations um, because there is a willingness to do it. And uh, yeah. Well, uh, I'm happy to bring Oakland to San Francisco here at the Common Golf Club. And here we are, you know, we're, we're, diversifying. We're a satellite now. Yes. <laughs> we're a satellite for, for Oakland. And, and, and you know, and, and what I'm looking out at is, is diversity. And uh, here, you're having this, you know, authentic conversation with myself and John. Um, so, John, yeah, let's let's hear from you. I was you. actually going to get into uh, age. Did, are there difference, uh, differences in support or approach to or uh, attitudes toward the Oakland Center, depending on you know the different age groups of the LGBTQ folks, both in general and specifically? No, in the, we, no, we have age. There's no difference in age. We have like we have the kids program, like um, game night on Friday. We have um, uh, the Queer Lit, mm -hmm. which focuses on you creative know writing. creative writing with the young kids. So there's different ages. And then, and then we, we have, have older and older out, and out on for Fridays. 60 plus. Yeah, which is so, a partnership with the, the twenty thirty thing. something year old group. You know, so it's their age is very, it's it's very. very the I will say this though: the average age of the volunteer of the the six hundred volunteers is about thirty four. That's awesome. That is yeah. so amazing. So what I'm hearing from you: building community diversity matters, and if we're trying to reach the entire community. So we're going to open it up to questions uh, for our guest today. We have a mic here in which our lovely Mark um, <laughs> will pass around. So lovely. <laughs> How did you assemble the first 600 volunteers that you've talked about? Wow. It was organic. We simply put it out on our website and they just signed up. So once people saw that we had a center, we were inundated. Okay. I'm interested in the genesis of it because I was 
I was executive director of the LGBTQ community in Marin for mm. some years mm-hmm. ago. And getting, having a website then wasn't, it didn't happen. A website is magical that way. It's magical. So that's your organizing. But, but I also have to say that I also have a long history of organizing in Oakland. So I'm also one of the founders of Oakland Pride. So I had that connection and the, and the ability to sort of get it out to a network of people. So, but uh, I think that having a real strong connection to the Oakland community, along with, of course, technology today, helped a lot. So a large part of what you're doing is very comprehensive. And it seems, looking at your calendar, that there's a real focus on health and wellness. Yes. So could you say a little bit about how that came together? Because in five months, you're providing comprehensive services for all age groups. With no money. And with no money. Well, that actually, let's... May I switch up my question? Yeah, yeah. How are you doing that? Because yeah. it's ethnically diverse, age, you know, ranging from, I've seen toddlers in there with their parents to elders who are there seeking services. So how are you, how are you doing this and what can we do to help? No, part, I can answer part of it, but Joe can answer most of it. As the board president, you know, we actually talk about this, but we also have the website. So what we normally get most of our money from is through PayPal. So people read the website and you go through PayPal. We have orientations every month. So what we do is we promote always about giving back to the community throughout, through our PayPal or donations or whatever. And the community has stepped up a lot because they know we don't have the 501c yet, which we pray this month that we'll get it. But um, until then, the community knows that the center is very important for, the, for them, not just for us. It's not about me and Joe. It's about Oakland and LGBTQ community. And those are the people that know that the center is very important. So they are coming out of their wallets and they're telling their family, their friends, and their coworkers. And that's how you generate that money. But of course, we need more fundings. And Joe won't add on to that. I want to say it is about Jeff and I. I'm sorry. Because it's about our leadership. Mm-hmm. People really invest in leadership. And Jeff is, it, it, when I said to Jeff, you better help me, he, he went beyond, above and beyond. This man loves Oakland. It's obvious. And when you see him at work, like he's a surgical nurse here in San Francisco at UCSF. He leaves that job and comes and work full time at, at the center. So it really is also about who we are and our commitment to this, this effort. I was speaking with Rebecca Rolf. Yeah, she came to the, she's the executive director of the San Francisco Center. And she was telling me how the San Francisco Center debuted to much, with much ado and, 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 and fanfare, and it was very expensive. And it, it almost went under at one point. And how she, thank goodness, helped to turn all that around. Uh, for us, it's a, more of a gradual sort of just grassroots. Our phone is a flip phone. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of the young people, as I call them, uh, was able to connect it to some other device to make us have multiple lines. Um, it's about $30 a month. And, uh, but we, we also, when we found the space, and I, I don't want to, I, I want to 
to get your answer to your question, but I do want to talk about the evolution of this center in just five months. When we found this space, it was a co-sharing space. So we knew we didn't have the money to open up a full-on center. We just were looking for some office space right. maybe. And um, so we were renting a space that uh, we were paying a lot of money for 5000 a month. 30, 35000 a 5000 total. And, yeah, and so if you see our center on the site, you'll see that it's pretty nice. And so uh, and the location is prime. Um, so we were allowed to rent some key spaces, but the operator of the space, something we learned in November, was being evicted. And we thought, oh, no, we just opened this center, and now we're going to be homeless. Um, my arm went numb, literally. It just went numb. I thought, this can't happen. And so... I went down to T-Mobile, and I asked them, do you have the number to the owner of this building? She, 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 she wouldn't give us the number. They wouldn't she was give us the number. So, so I went, and I said, and they gave it to me. And the email, and I emailed him and just told him who we are, our website, everything. And he called me about 20 minutes later and said, Joe, I'm going to ask you a question. What happens when people don't pay their bills? They're evicted. And I said, so she is really being evicted. And he said, yes. And she has to come up with a lot of money in a very short amount of time. And I said, well, we don't want to be evicted. What can we do to keep this place? And through his goodness and support, he was just a very kind, just generosity. He worked with us, and now we took over the whole space. And we then were able to, he allowed us to sublet. And so now we have tenants. In just this five months, we went from just this little nonprofit. But, of course, our rent increased. But we also had the opportunity to rent to other queer organizations. We went from having a bunch of offices to we have two left mm -hmm. now. And so our rent is pretty much back to where it yes. was. So um, we're, it's great. Yeah, I mean, it's who knew? But we're now, but we got to make a lot of money. We have to generate a lot of money. But the well, passion still. Yeah. Because that's what we can your To answer your question about how we do what we do, it, it's oaklandlgbtqcenter.org. And you, if you Google it, it'll probably come up to the top. Um, it's the community. I don't even, the community comes in and they say, Joe, we need this. And then I say, Okay, I, I mean, we have a little, we have a vetting process, but we, and then we say, okay, do it. And that's what's been happening there. So we put the responsibility back on them, even though they want these programs, it's easy to say, why don't you have this trans program or why don't you have the kids program? Well, are you willing to start it? You right. know, if you don't have, the, if you want to take initiative, you want to see it. And most of them want to take initiative and they say, okay, they'll work with you and they start the program. And it comes so, out of committee. Yes. All of those committees that we had in August, it's where it comes from, the community. 
Well, congratulations to you both and to Oakland and to the LGBTQ community. I mean, this is just so amazing and it's so you. great. And an example of how we build healthy communities that uh, services everyone. Um, we'll take one more question and then we're, we'll move on to our second half of our program. If, if somebody has a burning question they would like to ask. 3207 Lakeshore Avenue. So it's right on the corner of Lakeshore and Lakeside. It's that building that looks like a wedding cake. And then you see T-Mobile right below right us. T-Mobile so. <laughs> needs to sponsor the Oakland LGBTQ Center. <laughs> uh, congratulations again, and thank you to you both for sharing Oakland LGBTQ Center here on the Michelle Miao Show. Oh, thank, thank you, Michelle. Michelle and we look forward to having you thank come you. to the center. Yeah. I will. I was there at the opening. Yes. Yeah, I, you I, were. Again. Yeah. Uh, I was excited to be there. We thank love you. Michelle. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. So our second half, we have Kinfolk, who's with uh, uh, Spectrum Queer Media, and we'll talk about how Kin has created community as well. But what I love about Kin is that, you know, is, uh, there is a struggle, and social justice work is very hard, and it can be hard not, ju not from a, a political point of view, but on our bodies, on our mind, our, our spirit. And what Kin has done is created... Um, a, a space where we can heal from ourselves and our community. So I'm excited to have Ken with us. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. Welcome Beautiful. back to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. This program is a special tape program at the Commonwealth Club with my co-host, John Zipper. I miss saying, uh, you know, Taco Tuesdays because we used to tape together on Tuesdays, but moved it to Thursday. Don't you really just miss the tacos? <laughs> we did bring in tacos once. Once. <laughs> yes. Um, so this month we're focused on Black History Month, but instead of just talking about history, 
we're featuring speakers from the or thought leaders from the LGBTQI community and the black community and talking about the history that we continue to create. And so we have kinfolk who um, I just adore Ken so much in a lot of ways. Uh, (laughs) Ken is the founder of uh, Spectrum Queer Media, but has been building community in the Bay Area for a long time. It's been two decades. Um, And I actually learned the word artivist from you. Oh, Uh, right. Art slash activist. Love it. Artivist. Uh, But let's get to know you. You know, talk to us about you, uh, where you grew up, um, and all that good stuff. Wow. Well, thank you, first of all, for creating this space. During Black History Month, oftentimes there are people who speak for us still, which is odd, right, during Black History Month. I'm so excited that you reached out and you asked me if I would help co-curate this month. And of course, being seated in the LGBTQ community and being so acutely aware of how there's marginalization sometimes, even within Black History Month for us. Thank you for allowing us to have a voice and a space for this um, very poignant perspective. Okay. And it's also, we have so many perspectives. So I (laughs) want to be clear that we are not a monolith. Um, So I am a two spirit. My gender is spirit which means that at any particular time during the day, various energies converge, and that becomes how I um, express my, my gender spirit. And I think that that's a unique perspective, especially coming from the LGBTQ community, because so often the way that we're, we're viewed is through this lens of our sexuality. And so now that we've created new language, uh, really with an old perspective, because there have always been multiple genders, right? Now we're finally starting to re-embrace our ability to hone in on the language. And so I'm really delighted that um, I am not alone. I'm one of thousands, more than thousands. So um, the way that I ended up here is actually Angela Davis. Yes, I was at Wellesley College. I had finished um, a double major and a minor, and I was determined to meet Angela Davis, who was teaching at SFSU at the time. I came out here, didn't know anything about San Francisco, didn't know anything about the community, but I knew that Angela Davis was here. I knew about the history of you know, the Black Panther movement, but more importantly, I also knew that Angela Davis was a part of the Rainbow Tribe. And so I was blessed to actually be able to um, be a part of the master's program. I finished my master's in ethnic studies there a long time ago. I came out here in 1988. I'm 52 this year. So in that time, I almost immediately, you know, you meet Angela Davis, things happen very quickly if you're really committed to social justice. So I immediately was exposed to the Marcus bookstore family, the phenomena that is. And through that lens met June Jordan, Alice Walker, you know, all of these incredible artivists. And I think that's when the term hit me, that these are people who are making a difference in terms of social justice through a lens that's almost universal. And when the color purple came out, it's like, oh my gosh, the expansion to see how an artivist can be a polymath and extend beyond just one artistic genre was exciting for me. So then I went on to Stanford University, did some doctoral work in education, taught at the ed school, taught at the med school, really looking at behavior change. I wanted to understand what what motivates us to do various things because I really do believe in us. I believe that we will evolve to the point of humanity embracing love. 
embracing our spirit first, not always looking at the corporeal, you know, the corporeal casing, not always viewing you and thinking, oh, I see someone who's Asian, but really getting to the point where equity is about acknowledging what you bring in terms of your spirit. We're not there yet. We're moving there. It's good to have a sense of where the goal is, though. And I'm so grateful for the Oakland LGBTQ Center because Spectral Queer Media has always been in community and it's beautiful to actually plant roots someplace. And so that's the place. What are some ways that art is, has been effective or that you've seen it done really well oh, at yes. expressing the two-spirit idea and, and that core idea of focus on this and not yes. this? I love art. <laughs> I love art. Art is that universal truth. And of course, there are some issues with ableism, and there have been some artists that understand that. So sometimes there's tactile art, sometimes there's visual art, sometimes it's auditory. So I love um, expressing my own artistic language. So I play hand drums, I've led women's circles. I had a large circle in Oakland for almost three years where we met on a monthly basis, and it was for women and children, mostly marginalized, so that we were creating new ways of speaking and holding our truth. I love film. Film is one of the most, um, it's fast and soon becoming one of the most accessible ways for people to have a conversation. And now with the smartphone and the advent of all of these great apps, People can literally create a three-minute film, a digital story about what, what they're experiencing. So I find that for me as an artist and an activist, film is probably the number one way that I'm able to you know, make an impact and work with other artists to do that too. I find that really interesting because I remember I've read complaints from critics in the past who have referred to both film and television, this was maybe 20, 30 years ago, as you know, it's to the masses. It is top-down. It is, mm -hmm. here's what we say through mm -hmm. this monolithic studio system and network and all this kind of stuff. And the democratization that has come about yes. through, yes. you know, cell phones and, and YouTube and Facebook and, and others is, is, I think, revolutionary. And it's right, right. And there's still a divide. Yeah. There's still a divide. So there's still people who don't have access. And that's where artists who understand that, who are really focused on equity, are going into communities and creating this. Um, someone that is up in the upper echelon in terms of his artistry um, has done some work going around the world mm -hmm. looking at hip-hop, looking at dance as a form and how that's a different way of communicating that doesn't require that everyone can translate each other's language. Right. Yeah, so there's a lot. This is something I've been wanting to ask you for a really long okay. time. I'm and, excited about this question. Well, <laughs> it, it, it's just because, you know, you, it, like, again, you do a really great job at inviting community in, oh, even even if, you know, we're, we're struggling with our political differences <sighs> or yes. inequity, right? Okay. And right now, during this politically challenging time or with an administration who, uh, in my opinion at least, uh, has really divided our country through mm -hmm. culture wars or our identity. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, using our very basic sense of vision, when you see someone who looks different from you, there's already uh, some information going through your mind, you're processing from media, from messages that the president is sending that right. this person is different, therefore they do not matter mm -hmm. or they do matter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so my question to you is, how do you unpack that? <laughs> in community, in art, 
um, and then, you know, maintain strength within yourself, like mm-hmm. your spiritual self, to have this optimism to say, no, I could feel it in me that there change is happening, mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. will get there one day in which, um, you know, people have their own personal agenda to yes. divide us. Like, we will get over that. How right. do you do it? Well, first of all, and this is where art steps in. Art, in many ways, glorifies the performance. And at the same time, there's some authenticity in that, right? And so when I speak to people about the difference between being in a performative space and a transformative space, that's where we can begin the dialogue. Because we all have drag. You've heard of RuPaul's Drag Race. We all have our drag. We all have, at some point, the necessity to put on the garb, to put on the visage, to walk the walk in order to navigate through society. And what I'm trying to do is get people to start looking at what, what does it look like when you're stripped bare of that? And that's called your essence. That's called your spirit. So when we start to um, re-engage the word transformation and look at ourselves as individuals who can launch our own personal revolution every day to ask, well, what matters to me? What is my manifesto? How do I want to be a contributing part of this fabulous, glorious, colorful tapestry called human. When we start, you know, getting into it, sometimes it's a little um, bloody, it's multi-layered, it's nuanced, but I'm very patient. I'm a Gemini with Asperger's. So when one half has given up, the other half is cheering still. And so I think that there's a part of how I've also experienced people responding to what you see on the outside I don't know what y'all see on the outside, actually. I don't pay attention to what you see on the outside. I know myself intimately, and I feel that that is each of our personal missions, to spend time knowing ourselves, stripped bare. And so um, we will get into spaces, and I do a lot of conflict resolution. I actually call them tribunals. I think that even putting the word conflict in it is an awkward way of setting a stage. So in these tribunals, people who are, quote unquote, at odds with each other, who have differing perspectives, we first renegotiate the language. If, for example, with the racism under the rainbow um, conversation, we initially said, well, let's just put everyone in a room. Let's have everyone talk about race. Let's get everyone. And I thought, actually, colorism is a much more powerful energy that guides and twists and turns who we are and how we relate to each other than racism is. Race is a very new word, a very new invention in the context of our human history, our story, as I like to call it. And so if you start looking at color, our language is imbued with these time bombs, these ticking time bombs. You're thinking dark when you're sad. You're thinking black because this is what the language teaches us. And then you encounter someone who looks like me. And all of those definitions come into play, even though you mightn't feel that way. This is what the language is is seeding for. So we decided, why don't we separate the two groups? First start together and establish some norms. It is normal to think of black and dark in the most negative, egregious, hurtful ways. And now let's separate into two groups with the people who have been impacted by that, having an opportunity to talk about it, unfettered, unfiltered. 
and also give people who have used the term but haven't directly been impacted by it. And I dare say, white-identified people are impacted by racism just like we are, by colorism in a way that we are, because when we get down to the essence of our spirit, we know that it's wrong. We know that it's wrong. And it's very different to be in spaces where you're continually hearing it and there's no one standing up at all. I don't have that experience because if I'm in the space, oh heck yes, we're gonna have a conversation about it. But for white identified people who are in spaces where that conversation is not happening, what is that doing to their spirit? So they also needed a space to be able to have that conversation and we needed not to see white tears. That's a really important thing. People of color have done too much emotional weightlifting, too much spiritual labor on the behalf of our human species. And it really is time for us to understand what it feels like to be comfortable. We don't know what it's like to feel comfortable. We're constantly thinking about the way that even the language impacts us. When I watch the news or I'm, I'm reading a story, I have to take out words and say, okay, they meant dark, but they don't mean dark, dark. They meant the other dark. Oh, they said black. He has a black heart, but he's not black. He's a white identified person. Is his heart really? Okay, let's just, you know, push that to the side because I don't suffer from cognitive dissonance. Asperger's makes that easy for me. I do have to go through this process and I think it's a beautiful process. And so all of the white identified folks had a chance to ask themselves, unfettered, once again, unfiltered, and with tears galore, or with anger, or whatever emotions that they needed so that they can reconnect to their spirit, not their whiteness, but their spirit. How did you feel as a child when you first were told that black is bad? When you were first told that when you draw a painting in art class, if you're sad, use dark colors? How did you feel when you knew in your spirit that that's my cousin, though? That's I relate to this person as part of my human family. So if we had tried to have that conversation, you know, in the same space, I don't know that people would have been able to access that truth as readily. So one of the things that I do is I really try to see people like as they are and where you're standing right now and wherever you are, we can figure out how to, you know, take this walk together. We, we got to get you at the White House immediately. Oh, no. <laughs> John. Oh, oh, only only if Michelle is running. Or, or I was going to say, if you visit this White House, or, I want to see a live stream. Okay, okay, that's right. Or Kamala, Kamala. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, the issue of, of getting people transformed in the, the way they see other people as, mm -hmm, as individuals, mm -hmm. as their spirit, as you're saying, is that more difficult for them to change the way they see themselves mm -hmm. and not all the layers of what they, they look like and the, what they own and all that kind of stuff, or the way they see others. Mm -hmm. I would assume it's connected, but I mean, mm -hmm. I, I could also see someone mm -hmm. accept, make it more easy for them to accept one than the other, or that one mm -hmm. phase happens before the other. Well, Is that true? well, first of all, we all affect each other. Mm -hmm. So there's this, I don't know where this comes from, this thought that if you are reaching out to embrace the truths of marginalized people and to create equity, to create leadership coming from marginalized voices, that somehow that's a donation? That's not a donation. Everyone is being empowered by that because people who are marginalized on a day-to-day -day basis have to develop multiple strategies, different ways of seeing. People who are marginalized pay attention to everything that's happening in a room. 
And that kind of sensitivity is what you need for true leadership. I wish the leaders that we had chosen to run and represent our nation at this point were people who had that multiplicity of awareness, that sensitivity, because then I think that we would see a much more evolved state for all of us. So I first think that people need to challenge this notion that if you are a person of privilege, that somehow when you reach out, that you're losing something. Actually, it's quite the opposite. You're gaining something. And so that's, I think the privilege is an interesting conversation too, mm -hmm. because privilege is multi-layered. People love to think of the context as being one box, but we actually are intersectional beings. We have lots of different ways of being categorized or identified. So I say to folks, reassess your revolution. What are you standing for? What do you believe you're bringing to this lifetime? Then renegotiate where you've been. Perhaps where you know you'd like to be is not where you've been. And there are lots of organizations that help people with that. And you, you brought up Donald Trump. Let's oh, go with that. Oh, Let me he make who shall a, not be named, well, please. I, I want to name him because does the, talk about someone with privilege. I mean, we're talking about a billionaire who has always been rich, has had yes, pretty much every, yes. every good thing happened to him, including bone spurs to keep him out of Vietnam. And um, a wife who tolerates him, and we need to save her, by what, the way. Let's keep who, going. Well, yes. I think she knows what she's getting into. I, don't, I think battered wife syndrome is a very interesting thing, and we need to start looking at the way that we assume that if someone has wealth and they're married to a wealthy spouse, that they're protected. And actually, we should use the same exact criteria, and that's obviously a battered wife situation. So I say hashtag free Melania. Yes. <laughs> well, and there's, I think, you know, a lot of those folks who maybe were, and I'm guessing because I wasn't there, the folks, you, uh, the white people you separated into a different room. Yes. A, I doubt there were very many Trump supporters there. But if what a lot of them were coming around to was maybe just, you know, discussing and, and confronting themselves about something that they haven't before, then chances are they have in some way mm -hmm. they wouldn't have shown up for this conversation. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump has made very upfront his resistance, to mm -hmm. use that term, to acknowledging that. He, he's, he's a majoritarian viewpoint of, you know, it's a white Christian country, and if you're here and Driven you're not Driven by that, the military, by the way. Right, <laughs> but um, I don't have a problem with you, but I'm tolerating you. Yes. And that, he's made that so explicit, and his he's fed on, on and I obviously am, am giving my personal views here, that not representing we anything. We want but, your personal well, views. Well, I, I also you. say that because the Commonwealth Club is a nonpartisan, et cetera, organization. But um, he's fed on grievances of people who mm -hmm. have, in, many of them have enjoyed privileges, even if they're, they're thinking of themselves of, as not. Right. Um, but, you know, they're white, small-town folks who, in some cases, things are going poorly for. Right. But... He's taken those grievances and, mm -hmm. and, you know, married it to his billionaire grievances. Yes. And, it, and he's basically, and of course, what is the connection? We are that majoritarian That's group. Right. That's and right. And the rest of you need to get with it and stop trying to use Pull our bathrooms. Up and by all. your boots, Exactly. Yes. I mean, it, it, and so the short way of saying this is almost... Not isn't it good that he's elected, because that's not my argument, but isn't it good that at least with him... Yes. He's made it so obvious and, and un, what, unfiltered, unpretend, mm -hmm. I'll make up a word. No pretend. Um, yeah. yeah. 
it's almost easier to argue. Is it easier to argue against someone like that who has made it very clear and explicit rather than someone who maybe isn't even, who might be amenable mm-hmm. to, to your, your discussion, mm-hmm. but doesn't yes. yet, you know, isn't even aware of some of what they're dealing with and what, how they're acting? Is that, so, it's a poorly worded question. I apologize. No, it's a great but, question. So there's the art of living. Mm-hmm. And some people are so stuck in, in this. Do you know what cognitive dissonance is? Cognitive dissonance is when you know that you could be doing something differently. Mm-hmm. Usually something that um, allows you to see yourself as an evolved being. And yet your habits are inconsistent with that. So that would be a typical Trump supporter who says, you know, I'm not racist. I'm not a xenophobe. I truly believe that this is someone, though, that is making our streets safer. So as we watch fathers of children who, you know, people who are productive in society being carted away, cognitive dissonance allows those same folks to say, well, he must have done something wrong without even investigating it to quickly jump to that assumption. And so we are a wonderful nation that created one of the most powerful machines in terms of taking image and imagination and uh, making it large. And this performative quality that is uniquely American is also what's strangling us. And so you look at Hollywood now sort of imploding on itself. And that's because these lines are blurred between what is real and what is imagined. And Donald Trump is a master show person. There, there isn't any mistake about the fact that this is someone who understands how to manipulate the media. He understands how to manipulate the art. Um, so getting people into a space to ask those questions like, do you understand performance? This is a man who performs and then will backtrack. So just let's look at those inconsistencies. Perhaps we're seeing the reality of the person within the inconsistencies. Maybe that's who he is. He's an inconsistent person. Do you feel that you can trust inconsistency? And even people who believe in him will say, I was surprised when he did that thing. Is it possible that this is who he is? And is this someone who you feel comfortable being your leader? I I could... I could listen to Ken all oh, wow. morning, um, but I realize that Let's we are. Let's just hang out getting, afterwards. I know. Okay? Let's just have dinner we're, together. We're, we're winding down on time, but but John, did you have some last? I, I was just going to say you you seem very positive and optimistic. Are you? I do a natural with, optimist. I deal with a lot of oppression and hatred on a day to day basis. I have lupus, and I have outlived any sort of projections for my life expectancy wow. by creating a dynamic in my head of meditation when I'm speaking even. I listen. People don't listen to themselves when they're speaking, I noticed. And that's, for me, as someone who is a high-functioning autistic person, I pay attention to whether or not people are paying attention to themselves. You know, and I think that if people spent more time just listening to themselves, talk to yourselves. Everyone talk to yourselves. (laughs) Here, I'm I'm thinking I'm... I'm a crazy person because I no, th- always talk to yes. myself. Talk I talk to, to myself. I wake up in the middle of the night and I blurt things out because I've been talking to myself yes. in my sleep. Questions for Ken. Please. Hi. Hi, dear. Thank you for telling me that you're a Gemini with Asperger's. One of my granddaughters is as well. Yay. And Yay. Talk about that. 
and cognitive dissonance yes. has been a real powerful thing for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I embrace your, your baby, your grandbaby. <laughs> Thank she's, you. Uh, she's a wonderful young woman. I know she is. She's, uh, she's a 22-year-old who started college um, yes. studying the arts, yes. dance, theater. Yes. And a year later, she switched her major to computer science. <laughs> yes. Wow. Oh. Yes, great? that's awesome. Okay, I so I would like to get you. your information. I wish she could meet we, you. we might need to employ her to help with some She lives stuff. in Houston, so <laughs> she won't be able to come and meet you, but I wish she We're could. international. We've got the internet now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that share. I appreciate it. And, and oh, I, I wanted to quickly mention, I work with organizations like Showing Up for Racial Justice, and they are a national organization of white identified allies and accomplices. And the difference between an ally and accomplice is that when there's a need in community or there's, there's a identification of an issue and marginalized people will go to a white ally and say, we really need your support, a white ally will say, well, what do you need it for? And then there's conversation. An accomplice will say, I'm there. That's the difference, and we need both. So um, I encourage all white, white identified people who would like to um, create equity in community and also relieve yourself of the weight of the um, atrocities done in your name and your lineage, please take a look at showing up for racial justice. Please come to the Oakland LGBTQ Center. Help the Oakland LGBTQ Center continue to thrive and also check out Spectrum Queer Media. We've thrown all of our programs now our healing arts programs are all based at the LGBTQ Center. And how can people find that online? Uh, they should go to the Oakland, they could go to spectrumqueermedia.com. Um, okay. However, we're shifting and putting everything under the Oakland LGBTQ Center.org. Very good. That is so amazing. Ken, thank you so much thank you. Thank for, you. for you and for being here. Am and I coming back? You are coming back. <laughs> I was just about to mention. So. Spectrum Queer Media and Kinfolk has co-curated the entire programming for the month of February. Kim will be back next week as a uh, co-host cool. uh, for, for John in interviewing Janetta Johnson and Robbie Clark, two huge yes. social justice activists in our community. So thank you again. You can catch this program on Progressive Voices Network, or you can head to michellemeow.com. I hope to see you all soon again. Thursdays here at the Commonwealth Club. And if I could very briefly yep. note, in March, this program will still be on Thursdays. We'll be moving it to noon, so it'll be a little bit easier for some folks to attend. Lunch yeah. break. Is it possible for us to mention that following next week's amazing show looking at social justice, Samson McCormick is coming up from L.A.? Yeah. Okay, yes. Yes. So he's a Grammy-nominated out gay comedian, one of the very first in the nation. Oh. So that's going to be a really good show. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, folks. Thank you. Yay. So great. You're great. You are so good. Oh, my gosh. Racism under the rainbow. Thank you for I love that. We have, to, we have to do yeah. some more sessions. Yay. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, 
Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit pacificfertilitycenter.com.